This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Right now, we've been joined on the line by our friend Conrad Black, noted author, commentator, and historian. Conrad, how are you this afternoon? Keeping cool, I hope. I am, thanks. I'm sitting uh, in an air-conditioned room looking at uh, what looks just like lovely Canadian summer weather. (laughs) So you're not subscribing to the fact that uh, things are getting uh, precariously worse then? Uh, Meteorologically, I would say not. No. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, you know, that sort of balances out uh, who we heard from at the top of the hour, suggesting that, you know, the school curricula are not teaching adequate adequately the uh, idea of global warming and how we best address it. I mean, well, The reason is because it's rubbish. That's why they're not teaching. It's the one aspect of rubbish they're not teaching. I mean, we don't know, and people should stop pretending that they do know. If we listen to Al Gore and the Prince of Wales, at this point, Venice could only be visited in a submarine. The, the country of Tavala would have vanished under the waves. There'd be no more polar bears. And, uh, you know, you and I would be dressed up in... Uh, uh, we'd be going out in bathing attire in the middle of January. <laughs> Some of us still do that for kicks, Conrad. I don't want to share too many. I'd be going, out. <laughs> going to the swimming pool for Facebook. Right. All right. Well, you know, it was just a, a quick aside because we did have off the top uh, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia. He says the scientific consensus is about 97, 98 percent. complete bunk, and he knows that. I mean, unless he's just simply avoiding the debate. There's a vigorous debate, and meanwhile, as time goes by, there's no evidence of it. In this century, the first 15 years were cooler than the last 15 years of the last century. Now, they've come back to warmer for two years because of El Nino, but they're going back again. And we don't know, and we've got to be vigilant. Everyone dislikes pollution. We've got to try and keep things as clean as we can. But but, uh, shutting down the whole fossil fuel industry uh, on the basis of some completely unsubstantiated fear that otherwise the planet is going to become unlivable is just insane. Uh, it, look, the fact is these people are innocent dupes of the of the second act uh, of the international left after the, after the collapse of international communism and their defeat in the Cold War. They piled into the conservation movement, which was basically a bunch of uh, well-meaning, good, innocuous bird watchers and butterfly collectors, and and, and convinced everybody that uh, we had to save the planet. We had to destroy capitalism. It was just Marxism with a different a different kind of battle tank. He would brand you a heretic. Uh, but let's move on because you know when you talk about the left on the march, I a wanna... heretic to his religion. Yes, it's a badge of courage. But we'll see who's burned at the stake on this one. <laughs> And it won't be from global warming. <laughs> All right, Conrad Black, uh, author, commentator. As the President of the United States said to the Prince of Wales last month, it's called weather. <laughs> oh, he said that. Okay, uh, so he really took him to the woodshed. Well, the President's been saying a lot of things of late. As a matter of fact, I'm watching with rap fascination, you know, some of these rallies like North Carolina the other night. He seems to be presenting uh, the defining issue in next year's election as a referendum on socialism. And uh, even, you know, defining the Dems to a point where there's internecine warfare now. I mean, is this a brilliant tactic? Is it uh, an accident? I mean, how do you uh, assess this? I, I think it is a clever tactic. Uh, but, it, you know, it's rough and tumble politics. It's not a sort of, it's not a kind of dignified 
Lincoln-Douglas debate. I mean, that was for the Senate, not not the presidency. Although they did run against each other for that office two years later, but it, it's not a you know it's not a distinguished tactic. But the 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 tactics of Trump's opponents aren't very distinguished either. And I, I think you've got a number of elements. I mean, he's goading them on this impeachment thing. It's nonsense. They can't get the votes. And if if they managed to put it across in the House, and I doubt if they could, even with their majority, uh, the chances of uh, of them even holding the Democrats in the Senate are zero. I mean, they lose half the Democrats in the Senate, so it would be three quarters against. But uh, they he he sort of you know, they've been they've been taunting him with the with this for so long. He's goading them to give it a try. Uh, and and Pelosi is trying to restrain them, but you can see the more radical ones, you know, screaming for it. I mean, Al Green put his resolution up, but he only got 95 votes the other day. But he's also trying to make the point that underneath the halfway reasonable, if very tired and boring facade of the Schumer, Pelosi, business, uh, Joe Biden, business as usual Democrats is the throbbing heart of a bunch of raving lunatics <laughs> and, uh, you know, Islamists and socialists and so forth. And, and, and the, basically the, the Democrats are a, a rotten watermelon, you know, they're, they're green on the outside, but red inside. And, um, and uh, you, you, look, you can't say it. It's, it's very amusing the way he does it, and it's good entertainment, and it's probably good politics. Well, that's what I was wondering. You know, if it is something that is uh, premeditated, orchestrated, and he knows his uh, business in divide and conquer, so to speak, and, you know, with especially this squad, I was going to call them the Gang of Four, but I believe that would be copyright infringement from the Chinese government. Yeah, that's the phrase I use, though. <laughs> I, I think they look more like... Hey, what's her name? Chang Ching, you know, Mao Zedong's grieving widow. Yeah. And uh, than, than, than they do like a squad of anything I've seen, like Mod Squad or something. Those are quite respectable, reasonable young people. Speaking of the Chinese, you know, there are stories now, and again, because of this rift with China and so on and so forth, uh, so it's heightened tension and uh, maybe led to uh, certain emotional types of responses. Now, we're finding out that the Chinese government may be practicing intimidation tactics here domestically, you know, uh, in some fifth column types of ways, subversive. And it was a story of a gentleman who went up to, uh, I guess it was uh, some park in Ottawa, and he was wearing his Falun Gong t-shirt and was told to uh, keep out because part of the sponsorship was the Chinese embassy or the government itself. And so... Uh, it's manifesting itself in these ways, but Amnesty International is saying uh, there are the tentacles of the Chinese Communist government that are uh, sowing discord or, you know, trying to insert themselves into the public discourse in this country itself. Do you, do you believe that's taking place? I, I'm not qualified to say, but I believe it is possible. I, I wouldn't put it past the Chinese. I, I must say I, I'm, I, Amnesty International isn't the most credible organization in the world at times, and that was run by, you know, that Irish communist for a long time, but the uh, but they do sometimes do very good work and, and really you know help people in distress. But uh, I, I, I I wouldn't put much past the Chinese. I mean, it now appears, and maybe I've been very late coming to the realization of this, but the the, the collapse of Nortel, which was a great Canadian company, was because of industrial espionage by Huawei, and and uh, you, you know when when the Canadian Ministry of Defense moved its headquarters, the defense headquarters, out to the old uh, Nortel complex. Uh, you know, they had to strip 
thousands of miles of uh, of um, if, uh, fiber cables out that were part of the espionage system established by Huawei. I mean, people who would do that, uh, you know, would do a lot of things. And, and the Chinese have been, the government of China, of the People's Republic, has been extremely high-handed at the best of times. And they'll do what they can get away with. So we, you know, I, I, so I, I cannot say that I know because I don't know anything about it. I just say I wouldn't put it past them. With Conrad Black, by the way, you know, coincidentally, we were speaking to an Apollo historian earlier today, and uh, to that point, you know, people who are the beneficiaries of Canadian technological innovation, like uh, the demise of the Avro Aero project, for yep. example, led itself to those engineers going to NASA and being instrumental in the Apollo program, which saw the moon landing fifty years ago tomorrow very much uh, a high-water mark in the history of humankind. Right. Uh, Thank you for not saying people can't. Yeah, you know, I came that close. I was wondering if one small step for man is going to have to be revisited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have to. I don't know. I, I, does that still stand the test of time? How How do you gauge the significance of the moon landing psychologically? Look, I'll tell you this. If... Uh... No, I'm going to. I, I, I'm hovering on on the on the verge of a, of a, an absurd remark. So I won't make it. I was going to refer to if it was a woman who'd done it, and remembering the 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 uh, dress style of women 50 years ago, the ones who had the limbs for it. That might have been a much more interesting photograph descending on the moon. But that that that, that that's too esoteric. I, look, I think that. Um, uh, it was a fantastic thing. I'm a, of the venerable group of your listeners who remembers it very well, and um, and and it was it was very dramatic. Remember, there's that one one minute of silence as it went around the moon, and mm. there was just a complete radio silence, and it came back. It was very dramatic. Now, do you believe we can do something akin to that? I mean, uh, a colossal moonshot kind of thing. I consider, for example, our Canadian moonshot being the Transcontinental Railway. And, uh, you know, John A. MacDonald, when we hacked our way through the wilderness and uh, the mountains, you know, the Rocky Mountains, we were a country of like six million people. And and, and we didn't have the capital markets to do it. We had to get the, basically, we had to get uh, the, the, the financiers who supplied our competitors in the United States to produce the money. Could anything tantamount to that be done today? Yes, yes, uh, but uh, not quite as dramatic as that. I mean, the whole role of the moon psychologically in in, in the history and consciousness of man uh, has been so immense. You know, all these phrases about the man and the moon and all that kind of thing. Uh, it, It was just such a fantastic concept and then it happened so uh, uh, but in the terms of what you mean of great projects for this country mm. uh, absolutely it can be done and and uh, we saw it on a provincial level in Quebec years ago with with the Manicouagan dam do you remember that magnificent mm. dam premier johnson died there at the site the day before its official opening and it's now named after him it's the most graceful looking dam in the world you know it's a over a mile long with these vaulted arches and, and 700 feet high, but um, uh, and, and and you 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 know we did that. It sounds odd to think of it now, but the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. I mean, it sounds absurd, but 125,000 aviators or in-flight people, uh, you know, if they weren't flying the plane, doing other things on, on planes. Um, we trained them from all over the British Commonwealth here. It was a grandiose project. By, by the latter part of the war, all of the 
Commonwealth Air Forces and flying from Britain and over Germany and so on. They were all trained here, and um, or almost all. And it, it, it was a tremendously grandiose thing for a little country like we were. Well, that's the thing, you know. Uh, are we still people who dream big? I guess that was my question. The country question. can do it. We need the leadership. Well, I, mean, I happen to go to, if I may just take a, a very brief moment here, I happened to go to a thing last night for my friend Admiral Mark Norman, who was falsely charged, and I wrote about it a couple of times. I think we talked about it on, on your program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the whole case was nonsense, and the government withdrew it. But I was talking to one of the people from the place where he was accused falsely of, of trying to rig a deal, the shipyard in Levy, Quebec. And, and uh, I, I, my memory was correct. One of the largest dry docks in the world is just across the river from Quebec City. And I said, who had the vision to build that? I mean, we, we took in huge, you know, the original Queen Elizabeth, an 85,000-ton ship. We took that in to fit it out, uh, you know, was being uh, renovated as a troop carrier. And, and battleships and big aircraft carriers and things. And it was built like that in the 1930s by Mackenzie King. He sort of had this vision of Canada getting into that. Now, it was an amazing thing to do to put, you know, to put that in Quebec City. But it was, but it was brilliant, and we're still using it. Well, uh, as I say, uh, back in a day when maybe we dreamed bigger dreams. Conrad, got to let you go. I appreciate it very much. You uh, stay cool this weekend. Same to you, John. Always a pleasure. Likewise, Conrad Black, author, commentator, and historian. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.